So, welcome to the Cato Institute for an in-person book forum. In my particular case, for a variety of reasons, it's been almost three years since I've done this. For others, it will be probably something like a year and a half. It's good to see everyone, both here at the Cato Institute in our auditorium, and also, as ever, joining us online. Our book today that we will be talking about is Robert Corn Revere's book, The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, a book that is just now appearing with Cambridge University Press and will be discussed in depth today. Um, just in terms of some administrative housekeeping, uh, I would remind you, or I'm told to remind you, to keep, please keep all, your mask on at all times inside the Cato Institute, except when we're eating or drinking, which will come later today, as it always has. So I thought we would start today uh, with uh, a reminder to everyone that today is the anniversary of one of the most consequential events in the long or short history of Homo sapiens. And by that I mean, of course, today is the 1,709th anniversary of the Battle of Milvian Bridge. In that battle, Constantine became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire after one of their perpetual uh, fights over who would be number one. The loser of the Battle of Milvian Bridge, one Maxentius, notice you don't remember his name, you know Constantine, so don't lose battles if you want to be known forever. Maxentius drowned in the Tiber River, then had his head cut off, which was then carried around Rome. Now, there are a lot of problems with the United States. Certainly here at the Cato Institute, we're not going to deny that. But it still remains true that neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump lost the Battle of the 14th Street Bridge, drowned in the Potomac, and then had their heads carried around DC. On a more serious point, I think there's something relevant to this anniversary for our topic today. Because of course, Constantine's victory and because of his religious interpretation of that victory, Christianity became fused with the Roman state, became the dominant religion it was and would remain for centuries, and that, in a sense, Christianity, like other religions, became both a threat to freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and a limitation on the state in some regards as the years passed. And as Christianity itself split up, of course, as the overarching Roman Empire gave way to the future, some Christian sects also became had reason to want to have freedom of thought and speech. So the Battle of Milvian Bridge should remind us, and also the fact that Christianity itself was suppressed prior to that battle, should remind us that times change, that who is dictating the censorship 
often becomes a censor later on. So today's book, if you read in this area, or indeed you read the general uh, literature on this, is uh, not about the normal terms of our debate. Mostly we talk about, and have good reason to talk about, freedom of speech, why it's good, why it needs to be protected. This book is about that, but it also looks at these issues from the point of view of the censor, tries to understand the censor's point of view, and the dilemma that they face in being a censor. I have to say, I want to congratulate Robert Corn Revere, a longtime friend and a longtime friend of the Cato Institute, for having written this book. It was really important for our particular time, I think. One in which freedom of speech has come into question in ways that it hasn't been in the past. I also just want to express my awe and admiration that while working as a full-time lawyer, he was also able to write this book. So we'll begin today, as we always do at Cato, with a word from the author and then two commentators whom I shall introduce when their time comes. Robert Corn Revere is a leading First Amendment attorney in the United States. He's a partner at the DC firm of Davis Wright Tremaine LLP. He successfully argued the case United States versus Playboy Entertainment Group in 2000, in which the Supreme Court ruled as unconstitutional a section of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which limited the transmission of explicit, sexually explicit programming. As lead counsel to a group of Virginia citizens, he had previously successfully challenged on First Amendment grounds a restrictive internet policy at a public library. Again, that involved Loudoun County, which is once again in the news. Some things never change, eh? In recent years, Corn Revere has been successful in representing college and university students battling, uh, battling not citizenship, but censorship on campus. He served as chief counsel of the Federal Communications Interim Chair James Quello and co-author of Modern Communications Law. He's written on a wide variety of First Amendment issues including regulation of the internet, broadcasts, indecency, and flag burning. But the most important thing, from my point of view and from our point of view, he is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Bob, I'm delighted we're here together to celebrate your new book and to, in the spirit of free speech, have counter speech, perhaps, some criticisms. <laughs> Thanks, John. And uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for hosting this event. Um, thank all of you for braving the, the zombie apocalypse to come out and be here in person. Uh, thanks to the people who are joining us uh, by Zoom. Hopefully, uh, this will be uh, somewhat enjoyable anyway. I guess you can tell. Sometimes you can tell a book by its cover. Uh, and this is one that I. I um, went to uh, an independent person who had been recommended to me, a wonderful designer named Alex Libertazzi, who I think really captured the spirit of the book. As I was writing it, people would ask me, well, what's it about? And it's hard to describe in, in 10 words or less. There's not really an elevator pitch for this book, because all I could really come up with was the psychology of censorship, which frankly sounds like a, a real snooze fest. 
And so I, I tried to come up with better ways of describing it, but it's, it does talk about law, it does talk about history, a little bit about uh, the, the mindset of censors. Um, but mainly it's about the culture of free expression. And by extension, also the more compact area, the law of free expression. Okay. There we go. And this is what I mean by um, the, the, uh, the mindset of the censor uh, versus what I see as the culture of free expression expressed by what Judge Learned Hand described as the spirit of liberty. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote about this uh, in uh, 1919, saying that persecution of expression of opinions is perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and you want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. That's the mind of the censor in a nutshell. Um, and others have said this very much the same thing, with H.L. Mencken saying, moral crusader is very cocksureness is their chief source of strength. Um, Justice Anthony Kennedy talking about self-assurance has always been the mindset of the censor, um, as opposed to a spirit of liberty, which uh, Judge Hand, at the height of World War II, described as a spirit which is not too sure that it's right. It seeks to understand the minds of other men and women, and it uh, is the spirit which weighs our interests alongside our own without bias. Now, in that same speech, Judge Hand also talked about how if you don't have the spirit of liberty, then no law, no constitution will save us, uh, that uh, you really have to have both the spirit of liberty, the spirit of creative expression, and the law that supports it. As many of you may know, uh, First Amendment jurisprudence really didn't develop into about a third of the way, or begin to develop, about a third of the way into the 20th century. So we were operating throughout the 19th century where the First Amendment, you might call it a dead letter, but there were no cases establishing what that meant. And during that time, we, we saw arise someone who personified the spirit of the center, the mind of the censor and that was Anthony Comstock. He started out as a vigilante in New York doing citizen's arrests. Within a year, he had gotten the attention of the founder or the, the heads of the YMCA in New York who were among the richest and most influential men in America. They sponsored him for a trip to Washington, D.C. to lobby for uh, a new obscenity law. Now, this is where the mindset and the law meet. And you see this expressed in this law, which remarkably was adopted almost a year to the day from when he started his vigilante crusades. Uh, he was in Washington, had the support, and ended up with a law that, as you can see from the text here, is incredibly broad, defining obscenity uh, as any pamphlet, paper, writing, advertisement, circular, print, picture, drawing, or other article of an immoral nature or any drug or medicine for the prevention of contraception or for causing unlawful abortion. This was the breadth of the law. And at the time, as I mentioned, there was no constitutional constraint on what could fall under this law. At the time, we didn't have any decisions under American law. And so we had to import law from England, uh, which personified Victorian morality. The prevailing case was Regina versus Hicklin, which was adopted by American courts, basically saying that obscenity is anything that tends to deprave uh, and corrupt 
those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, uh, regardless of artistic or, or literary merit. There was no looking at the work as a whole. Books could be condemned simply by their titles. And as a matter of fact, courts at the time said that if books were sufficiently salacious, they wouldn't even allow them by the defense to be placed in the court's records because that would be unseemly. And so you had this toxic combination of a very broad law and um, no legal standards to constrain it, no constitutional law at the time. Uh, it was in this period, right after the passage of this law, Comstock helped form the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, the most appropriately named anti-vice society uh, you can think of. And by the way, this is their official seal, and it pretty much says it all. It shows on one hand an officer leading a miscreant off to jail, and on the other, a top-hatted Victorian gentleman dumping armloads of books into a fire. And that was exactly what Comstock was all about. As a matter of fact, under the law, he was designated a special agent of the US Post Office. He had the power to arrest people and enforce the law himself. He brought numerous prosecutions. And for 40 years, his attitudes, uh, which were uh, rooted in fundamentalist uh, religion, um, basically dictated what could be acceptable in American literature, in art. He prosecuted uh, medical texts because they provided too much information about the human body. Uh, he uh, prosecuted abortionists or anyone who marketed contraceptives. It was really remarkable. At the end of his 40-year career, he estimated that he had convicted enough people to fill a train of 60 coaches, each filled with 60 people and a 61st first coach almost completely full. He had arrested over 3,800 people and obtained uh, guilty pleas or guilty, convic guilty pleas or convictions in almost 2,900 of them. He claimed to have been, and by the way, before becoming this vigilante, he had been a dry goods clerk, and so he always kept records of everything, and he kept records of this as well. Uh, he, he claimed to have suppressed 3 million pictures and postcards 30,000 printing plates or books, 700 pictures that had hung in saloons, 3.5 million circulars, 88,000 newspapers with ads for sexual materials, and 20,000 prints or images. And it wasn't enough for Comstock just to get a conviction. He would get the printing plates and melt them down and burn the books. Uh, that was obscenity law in, in the United States for the end of the 19th century and pretty well into the 20th century. But like everything, there is a reaction, both in terms of the culture of free expression and in the law of free expression. And Comstock triggered both. He tr uh, triggered cultural pushback, and uh, ultimately his efforts were undermined. For one thing, there is what I described as the Comstock effect, and that is he made the materials more attractive. Uh, people clamored to buy copies of the prints that he suppressed, like uh, this copy of uh, September Morn, which was made famous by Comstock in a front page account of his lobbying a store uh, clerk to take it out of the window. He um, complained about George Bernard Shaw's play, uh, Mrs. Warren's Profession. And because that got reported, uh, because the uh, theater owner had slyly leaked it to the press that Comstock was trying to close down the play, the opening of Mr. Warren's profession was flooded with people who wanted to come see it, so much so that the police had to call out the reserves to manage the crowds. So ultimately, Comstock undermined his own efforts 
first by popularizing the work, the, the, the works he tried to suppress, and secondly, by creating both a cultural and legal um, um, a backlash that uh, eventually undid all of his work. Um, one current biography of Comstock says that he was single-handedly responsible for the creation of a First Amendment bar that uh, began to develop the legal arguments that would take decades for courts to accept, but ultimately they were uh, the Hicklin rule, not undone until 1957 by the Supreme Court in uh, Roth versus the United States. The other thing that happened with, with Comstock, and this is in part because of the cultural reaction, is that he began to be ridiculed in the popular press. And uh, there are a number of examples of this. Uh, the first one in the upper uh, right um, is uh, uh, something that uh, was published after he attacked the Art Students League and tried to prosecute them because their materials contained uh, nude artists. This shows him attacking a, an artist uh, doing a painting of a woman who is submerged in a creek. The caption to the uh, cartoon said, don't you suppose I can imagine what is under the water? Uh, the one below that shows uh, an elderly Comstock, this is right around the time of his death, uh, published in the Masses uh, magazine, uh, saying, your honor, this woman gave birth to a naked child. And then the other cartoon, Oh, Wicked Flesh, uh, needs no explanation. But the point is, it is this kind of ridicule that changed the culture and ultimately uh, undermined Comstock's historic standing. This is the way he is remembered, as a buffoon, rather than someone who set the cultural rules for almost four decades. Now, as... I've mentioned censors today, and this is a major theme of the book, try to deny what they're doing as censorship. And part of the reason for that is because Comstock spoiled the profession for everybody else. He made it seem like a buffoonish enterprise or a busybody's enterprise, and one that the courts were increasingly turning against as well. That doesn't mean that there has been less of an interest in censorship when an activist of some sort or other gets in mind that this latest evil that usually is um, uh, undermining our children uh, needs to be suppressed, they will distance themselves from um, uh, the enterprise of censorship and claim what they're doing is not censorship. Although they share the other characteristics of censors. First, they believe in harnessing the power of the state either to suppress information they think is evil or to mandate information they think is particularly beneficial. Uh, the second is certainty, as I mentioned. That is the chief hallmark of the censor. And the third, which exists now after Comstock, is they constantly try and deny what they're doing. And that was the case with Dr. Frederick Wordham, who was a psychiatrist who led a crusade against comic books in the 1950s. Now, there had been some of, of a public groundswell uh, on this issue starting in the late 40s. There were even, as... Um, uh, this next uh, picture shows public organized bonfires where people would be encouraged to come and burn their comic books, which is something of an uncomfortable thing when you think we just finished a world war to fight Nazis who were known for burning books. But nonetheless, this happened with comic books. Uh, and Frederick Wordham got in the lead of, of this movement 
proposed laws in local um, jurisdictions like Los Angeles. <clears throat> he supported efforts to adopt a comic book regulation law in New York. Fortunately, that was vetoed by the governor. Uh, and then he supported efforts to adopt a national law that would prohibit horror or crime comics, which he claimed, as Comstock had before him when, it, when the issue was uh, dime novels, uh, which he claimed caused kids to commit crimes and reading comic books like Wonder Woman and Batman turned kids gay. Uh, so needless to say, issues like this were catnip for politicians. There were hearings in 1954, and that led to essentially muscling the industry into the comic book code uh, where every proposed comic for um, publishers who were associated with the Comics Code Authority, they had to submit their storyboards and their uh, art before they were allowed to be published. Um, again, it was one of those voluntary measures that was adopted at the behest of strong threats from, from the state. Um, ultimately, uh, every comic had to have this approval by the Comics Code Authority. And as I detail in the book, ultimately these kinds of efforts fade away and fail and become an embarrassment. Uh, this did great damage to the comic book industry in the 50s. Uh, many publishers went out of business. Many people were unemployed. But ultimately, comics came back to the point where today, you can't get a movie made unless someone in the cast is wearing a cape. So you, know, you see these efforts where the censor is influential for a time. But then as the culture kicks in and as the law kicks in, their ability to do their job uh, uh, basically fades away. And that was also what happened in the mid-1980s with the drive against what was called porn rock. You may have read about or, or remember uh, the Parents Music Resource Center, which was put together by an influential group of Washington wives. Here pictured as Tipper Gore and Susan Baker. Uh, it was estimated by the LA Times that 50% of PMRC's membership was married to 10% of the Senate, which explains why in September 1985, there were hearings to look into the phenomenon of porn rock. Now, testifying on the other side, being brought in as the designated bad guys in the sort of World Wrestling Federation model that is congressional hearings, was Frank Zappa and uh, lead singer for Twisted Sister, Dee Snyder. Um, and uh, basically, it was a show that people have written about for basically 40 years. Actually, they're still writing about it. Um, this led to the music industry, quote, voluntarily adopting the music labeling sticker. Um, ultimately, that has become pretty much of an embarrassment. And as in many of these episodes, it is later used by those who were criticizing it. Um, here's a George Carlin album, Two Live Crew incorporated it into their shows. Um, ultimately, because of the cultural influences, the influence of the censor fades. Um, one of the things that was notable at the hearing is that the frequent denials of those who were both holding the hearing and of the PMRC representatives who testified was every five minutes or so, someone would say, but this isn't censorship. You know, we're not intending any sort of governmental action. Notwithstanding the fact that Congress threatened to withhold a blank tape tax that uh, the industry wanted um, at the same time, and people would constantly talk about FCC oversight of, um, show, uh, of music that got radio play, 
um, and notwithstanding the fact that PMRC went on later to support uh, music labeling legislation in 19 states. So again, it is a voluntary measure, but it's backed by the threat of government force. And we also turn to another form of government leaning on um, uh, an industry, and in this is case of FCC public interest regulation. I focus on Newton Minow, who gave the uh, probably the most famous speech in American broadcasting history, the May 9th, 1961 Vast Wasteland speech, where he talked about how television is nothing but a vast wasteland, and by the way, if you don't clean up your act, you, we, we, we have oversight over your licenses, and if we determine it's not in the public interest, then um, there can be consequences. Now, again, um, Minow consistently denied that what he was up to was censorship. Now, this wasn't the kind of censorship that Comstock was engaged in, where he was threatening to put people in jail for publishing the wrong content. This was more of a eat your vegetables, we know what is good for you uh, kind of censorship, where the federal government nudges broadcasters into putting on programs that uh, the federal agency thinks is more beneficial. And Newton Minow would say, I won't disagree that people would rather watch a Western than a symphony. But you as broadcasters are not performing your responsibilities if you only provide what people want to see, which I kind of thought was the point. But anyway, uh, the chapter goes into what is behind public interest regulation and how it has become increasingly anachronistic not just in, for broadcasting and among broadcast licensees, but also because of the many alternatives people have now in you know, streaming content, which, by the way, without government oversight, without government regulation of public interest standards, has brought much more quality and beneficial programming uh, so that we're experiencing a new renaissance of television at a time when more, or fewer and fewer of the media are subjected to federal oversight. Now, Minow did get his comeuppance in somewhat of a different way, not to the extent that Comstock did, of course. But a um, uh, little known fact uh, in the show Gilligan's Island, the SS Minow was named for Newton Minow, even though it's spelled like the tiny fish and not the bureaucrat. Um, Minow has only one N in, in his name. Uh, but uh, anyway, this was a dig at um, uh, um, Newton Minow because um, Sherwood Schwartz, who produced the show, detested the vast wasteland speech <clears throat> and wanted to register this as a small protest. Um, I guess in um, some sort of satisfaction, I think it's safe to say that uh, Gilligan's Island, which is one of the most successful syndicated shows in history, is remembered more than Newton Minow. The other side of, of broadcast regulation that I talk about is the indecency panic, and I focus in this chapter on Brent Bazell, uh, who is a longtime media critic and also who is founder of the Parents Television Council, whose very existence was to leverage the FCC into greater enforcement of its indecency standards. Here he's uh, testifying in January uh, 2003. Uh, and. Uh, Congress was already focused on the issue, but then three days later, this happened, um, which took a, an issue that was already politically hot and made it go nuclear so that Congress got involved, 
the FCC announced uh, a, a series of enforcement initiatives. Congress increased the fines for um, um, broadcast indecency by 10 times and explained that it was driven by the fact that so many people were complaining about broadcast content. Matter of fact, you can see, just for the year 2004, the number of complaints skyrocketed in that year. Um, and so, of course, Congress was merely reacting to what the public demanded, right? Well, not so much. Parents Television Council had an active campaign of generating complaints. Not only did they have forms on their website so that people who had never seen the show could complain, they would force multiply by submitting the complaints that came in that they got people to sign to multiple FCC offices. And then behind the scenes, lobbied the FCC to count each complaint that came to a separate office so that every complaint that came from their website was counted five, six, and sometimes seven times. Uh, so needless to say, the uh, number of complaints came up. And uh, according to the information released by the FCC, in response to a Freedom of Information Act request, the number of complaints generated by the, by the PTC was 99.6% of all complaints that they received. So again, it was the successful use of lobbying to make this seem like a bigger problem. Now, while the problem was in the political arena with the FCC and Congress, you had a lot of harsh actions taken toward broadcasters. There was a lot of chilling effect among uh, people in the broadcast industry. Um, but once those measures got to court and the rule of law kicked in, you got a very different result because the standard from broadcast indecency is essentially the Hicklin rule, right? If it offends somebody, then that's all that you need. Once the courts got involved, the Second Circuit struck down a uh, fine that it had imposed on, um, on Fox Broadcasting. The Third Circuit rejected the Super Bowl fine. Uh, the Supreme Court affirmed those decisions, but on due process grounds. So we haven't had a final decision clarifying the legal standard. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, campaign by PTC essentially ended at that point. Now, one of the last things I talk about in the book is how there is a growing trend among some um, and, you know, uh, maybe Catherine will talk about this a little bit as well. Uh, current scholars criticizing the Roberts Court for being too free speech protective. This quote from Herbert Marcuse goes back to the 1960s, but it shows academic support basically denigrating the, the very notion of First Amendment values. And you see it uh, sort of a, uh, in a range of different scholarly interests advocating different kinds of uh, restrictions and justifying them by saying either that speech shouldn't have been protected in the first place or it's not really speech, it's conduct or various things like that. And what it does is it complicates the idea of identifying who the censors are. So I came up with this. I call it the Foxworthy scale. Why the Foxworthy scale? Well, you, you may have heard of the... Um, a member of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if, you know, you might be a redneck if you've been married three times and have the same in-laws. Or you might be a redneck if you own 
14 cars are, you, you own a home that is mobile and 14 cars that aren't. Okay, those kinds of things. He has a million of them. Um, this isn't as funny, but it, it kind of tracks the techniques that Comstock perfected. And I won't go through all of these, but one way to recognize that what people are really up to when they're advocating different theories of, of the First Amendment to restrict speech is what techniques do they use? Do they dismiss support for free speech as empty dogma? As you will see a lot of modern scholars do, they'll say, oh, it's First Amendment fundamentalism, or that person's an absolutist, although I've been practicing First Amendment law for 38 years. I don't think I've ever met a First Amendment absolutist. Um, or let's say you can summarize your opposition to robust free speech protections on a bumper sticker. First Amendment Lochnerism, for example, or weaponizing the First Amendment. I go through a number of these in the book and sort of come up with a way to, sort of a satirical way of measuring that by figuring out where does this advocate, where does this scholar come out on the free speech scale? How many of those factors in the Foxworthy scale do they meet? And where would that show on something if we had something called a sensorometer. Uh, some who get actively involved in coming up with proposals to restrict speech, drafting ordinances and so on, might take it to 11. Others, armchair uh, um, academics who simply write law review articles, maybe not so much. Anyway, my idea is that it pays to know them when you see them. So that's the basic outline of the book. Um, and I'll be happy to uh, hear if anyone takes issue with it. Oh, thanks, Bob. And again, congratulations. I can think of really no one to be a better commentator and critic of this book than Catherine Ross. Uh, Professor Ross is Lyle T. Alverson, Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. She specializes in constitutional law with particular emphasis on the First Amendment and on family law. Her last book, Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights in 2015, was named the best book on the First Amendment by concurring opinions, First Amendment News. It also won the Critics' Choice Book Award from the American Education Studies Association, and we were proud to have a book forum like this on that book. Professor Ross holds her BA PhD in history. We have two PhD historians on our panel today and a JD from Yale University. Before attending Yale Law School, Professor Ross was on the faculty of the Yale Child Studies Center, the Medical School, and the Bush Center on Child Development and Social Policy at Yale. Prior to entering legal academia, Professor Ross was a litigator at Paul Weiss Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison in New York, where she won major impact litigation on behalf of the city's homeless population. Now, her next book, her new book that will appear next month, A Right to Lie, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment, uh, will be released next month and will be the focus of a Cato book forum on November 16th in this very room. So I'd like to invite everyone that's here today and everyone online to come here and to enjoy the safe uh, confines of the Cato Institute to discuss this important book. I will say one other thing, that I, point I make, uh, and a kind of hobby horse, which I think is a good one. You know, I don't think Catherine uh, agrees with every policy uh, 
point of view that people here at the Cato Institute advocate. But that's great. It's great because we need someone, we need each other to criticize and better our points of view. But it, she stands for something else that's very important that I've come to appreciate over the last year or more so, which is people can disagree about policy and yet agree that free speech, robust free speech, is the best way for the society to go forward. We live at a time where everything seems to get polarized, red, blue, and everything, perhaps including free speech, will be that way at some point. The policy seems to be that way. It's important that people like Catherine exist that say free speech is important, even though I disagree with these other people that think free speech is important. So for that reason, Catherine, it's great to have you back, and we look forward to you next month in your new book. Thank you so much, John. Uh, I appreciate that introduction, but particularly the last part of it. And I am exceptionally pleased to be here. Uh, like John, this is my first in-person appearance. Uh, but really, um, it's a pleasure to return to a Cato Book Forum and to talk about this important book. There is sort of a serendipitous arc uh, to my intellectual history with Bob as it bears on the censor's dilemma. So I'm just going to say a little bit about our intellectual friendship. Um, I first met Bob, um, not, of course, in person, uh, almost 20 years ago or about 20 years ago when he reached out to me about an article I had published on how the federal government used the presumed needs of children whenever it attempted to limit what materials reach the general population, including adults. And I uh, focused on a line of cases in which the government overturned every federal regulation that was ostensibly aimed at protecting children and helping parents because the state failed to show that, they, that it had a compelling interest that is required in First Amendment law before it can regulate protected speech. And then our paths began to overlap in First Amendment circles. And my first visit to Cato uh, was as a commentator on Bob's excellent article on ratifying the assassin's veto, in which he, um, he emphasized that um, different legal regimes respond differently to the censorship of outrageous and offensive speech uh, by comparing the United States and Europe in the wake of Charlie Hebdo and talking about hate speech and what a difficult time censors have, even when they are given official permission to go after hate speech, to define it and to understand it accurately in its context so that comedians and other commentators who uh, were actually making serious points were being uh, processed through the criminal law. Um, and his thesis is that free expression does not long survive when speech that offends someone is silenced. Definitions are the devil's work in First Amendment law. And this leads us to his current discussion of topics including obscenity and indecency. Um, so this, with his vast First Amendment uh, litigation experience, all feeds into um, this new book. I want to start by just heaping some praise 
on a few notable aspects of the book. And then I'm going to turn to two pressing extremely contemporary issues, the parental attack on books and curriculum sweeping the nation, and what to do about Facebook. And I'll explain how I think that Bob's book uh, illuminates our understanding of those unfolding events. The book is impeccably researched and very accessibly written. As a historian and a First Amendment scholar, I learned a lot of fascinating details and backstories about incidents that I thought I understood very well. Uh, it's a very lively narrative that does bring the censors to life. I thought about Comstock in a different way after reading the book. Not that I had been a fan of his, I just understood him a lot better. Um, and even Floyd Abrams, the most eminent, uh, no offense to Bob, uh, First Amendment lawyer in the country, uh, notes in his introduction that he learned more about the backstory of one of his own cases. Um, as a historian, I particularly appreciated Bob's sensitivity to how and when First Amendment doctrine unfolded. A lot of legal scholars ignore the different stages of First Amendment law and read backwards um, from current doctrine or more recent doctrine to a period when there was no or virtually no doctrine. And he also does a great job explaining the relationship between cultural and political developments and free speech doctrine as it evolved. Um, he states perhaps more bluntly than I've ever seen that the Supreme Court dodges issues that it doesn't want to have to deal with, hoping they might disappear, uh, particularly in its treatment of um, questions about the radio frequencies and how they should be uh, conceptualized. He uses one of my favorite quotes from Justice Harlan to great effect. Harlan said uh, famously, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. And that theme runs through Bob's book uh, as he shows how matters of taste and morals based both on religion and on secular ideology uh, lead to the same level of certitude or conviction uh, that makes people conclude that some speech is so valuable it should be compelled and makes others conclude that speech is so dangerous it should be restricted. And both of those are fundamentally barred by, first, by the First Amendment. And he further uh, makes the point throughout the book, which too many people overlook from both sides of the political spectrum, that um, everyone has a risk of being prone to censor when they can. I don't mean every human being, uh, because I think none of us up here would be prone to that by our general uh, philosophies and temperament, but um, people from of all political stripes uh, are uh, fall sway to this temptation. Um, and so we go from the morality of Comstock to the cultural superiority of liberals um, and Newt Minow and the neo-Marcusean um, progressive academics uh, in, the, in the current world who too often value First Amendment values over First Amendment, I'm sorry, 14th Amendment values over First Amendment guarantees when 
uh, as can happen, the values of dignity and expression seem to be in conflict as when we talk about things like hate speech. Um, Bob also does a great job of illuminating the varieties of censorship, only some of which implicate the state action that is a requirement for bringing a First Amendment challenge in court. Uh, so as Bob explains in the book, the First Amendment only limits the government, but it has been understood to limit government at every level and every government actor in their official capacity. Um, so one question is, uh, the in, in episodes where government actors were involved, but they never actually took an action that can be the basis for a legal claim. So there he talks about indirect censorship in which the state uses its coercive power without ever actually taking a step that would amount to government action. This is a sort of underground censorship that appears to be immune from judicial review. So congressional hearings, like those on the music industry, where everyone said, we have no intention of passing legislation. We're not going to censor. Uh, and um, FCC uh, informal notices, inquiries that could cast a chill on radio and television stations, um, informal notices and inquiries, uh, all of which led to what is known as self-regulation, but the self-regulation isn't really um, self-initiated uh, uh, in a voluntary manner. So the FCC's use of indirect compulsion, as one example, uh, to achieve what is clearly not allowed by the First Amendment uh, leads to this sort of informal or backstage dialogue that produces self-regulation. Um, there, I, I was very interested in Bob's um, assessment of how uh, the smaller fish in an industry tend to go out of business in the face of this kind of pressure, and also because they don't have access to the uh, very expensive legal counsel that helps the larger and more dominant figures in an industry uh, protect themselves. And the cost of noncompliance in threatened litigation is just too heavy. So um, the early radio regulation, I had not realized, actually pushed out of business about half of the public and university radio stations that presumably were providing exactly the sort of non-wasteland content, oh, this was before Minnow, um, that we would want to encourage as a society. Um, so uh, all of this led to the voluntary self-regulation reflected in the movie ratings that were the first uh, such uh, approach that we still have in place, labeling music, and more recently, the um, video game industry's code that helped protect um, the industry in the face of restrictive legislation in California that the Supreme Court overturned in entertainment merchants. Uh, but that case also was a con uh, reflected a continuation of the trend that I had written about that first made Bob reach out to me um, because the court found there was no compelling interest in regulating young people's um, access to 
violent video games because they the state had failed to show um, a causality between those games and problems associated with children that people worried about, uh, which were exactly the same language that Comstock used uh, more than a century ago. Um, so the other um, approach doesn't involve government action really at all, except to the extent that it uh, urges, successfully urges, the government to act. And that's what is known as grassroots action. And of course, there is some uh, genuine grassroots input on all of these issues. But even there, as Bob just showed with his chart about the complaints uh, generated by Bozell's organization, um, some of it is sort of manufactured uh, with inflated counts that mirror some of the things that Comstock did when he talked about his six and a half railway cars. Um, and the government often has an oversized reaction to a single complaint. And this is true at every level of government, from the high school where one parent complains about a book in the curriculum or a uh, play that is about to be performed as being indecent or disturbing, and the principal responds immediately to avoid controversy, uh, very much in conflict with First Amendment values. I relish in controversy with John. Um, we're not that far apart on many things. Um, but uh, to the um, single complaint that led to the Pacifica case, uh, in which the Supreme Court said the FCC could regulate the seven words that can never be said uh, on broadcast media uh, in response to um, Carlin's performance, or on the other side of the political spectrum, um, the setup that led to the Ginsburg case uh, about New York uh, State's regulations on the access to girly magazines that have to be kept under covers to protect um, young people. And just one viewer got BBC's Singing Detective canceled, uh, which led to me putting it on my watch list, because um, I had missed it. Uh, now you can get it because of streaming media. Uh, but that leads to a second um, question. Um, some of this grassroots uh, activity may not have taken place without rabble-rousing by government actors. So with respect to the music industry, we saw the activities of the congressional wives and their ability to get these hearings. With comic books, the book burnings that appeared to be local phenomena were encouraged not only by the congressional hearings and the resulting media coverage, uh, but also by local officials, like a mayor who gave out an award for participating in book burning. Um, now, that doesn't change the legal analysis of when there is state action, but running through Bob's work, I think, is a suggestion that maybe we need to think more broadly about what amounts to state action because 
these state actors and their indirect activity. Uh, one senator said, I'm, I'm here as, you know, as a parent. I'm not here as a senator about um, the, the music lyrics. Um, but maybe we should think a little bit more broadly when the power that those figures have creates the chill that the First Amendment is concerned about. Um, so what about consumer pressure and market power of groups like advertisers? Those are fully protected by the First Amendment because there's no state action. And that's one reason people today are talking about, you know, the advertisers really ought to lean on Facebook to get rid of the most dangerous content. And that can be used by people of all political persuasions. So now I'm going to pivot to the central paradox that um, illuminates Bob's book, um, the, the censor's dilemma itself. And as he points out, since Comstock, in the United States, but not in the rest of the world necessarily, no one willingly wants to be identified as a censor. And they will go to great lengths to explain why they aren't censors. So why is it so bad to be a censor if everybody does it with different goals, different things they would censor? Um, and I think, uh, and I agree with Bob, I find it quite convincing that it's the stink of Comstock who became a laughing stock. Um, and yet we see, as, as Bob mentioned, the current um, academic disdain for free expression in many progressive academic quarters uh, across fields, but quite uh, shockingly also involving some law professors who have been leaders uh, in saying speech is not the most important constitutional value. So, and with, with great moral certitude that they are right. Um, so one might say, are these performances, stances that are taken to draw fire and promote discussion, or are they really a serious effort to inhibit expression? And some of these scholars say, um, no, this uh, th this kind of speech is either so lacking in value, it doesn't deserve constitutional protection, it's hate speech is akin to obscenity, in other words, or that it's not speech at all because it's really about promoting um, action and conduct. And speech to promote conduct is absolutely protected by the First Amendment unless it rises to the level of incitement. Uh, or they claim that our, we are urging speech rules, but we're doing it to enhance social dialogue. Um, you can't enhance social dialogue by enforcing a speech code, because then no one is actually um, engaged in the free marketplace of ideas, which even if that is just a construct of the legal imagination, is one of the organizing principles of our First Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, but Bob reassures us that his thesis about the censor's dilemma still holds up in what he calls the dumpster fire of 2020, which I feel certain uh, carries over into 2021. But it seems to me that today 
there are people who are happy to fly the censor's banner and to claim it for themselves in the midst of hyperpartisanship and culture wars. So the first example is the hullabaloo of parents who demand schools and school boards censor and the uh, very topical crescendo of concern over social media sites and how they are used. Both of these campaigns, um, like the rest of the examples in Bob's book and the examples in my 20-year-old article, use children as cover for broader sensorial aims that would fulfill religious or cultural goals in service of uh, that, that have created moral certitude and um, unbending conviction that one is right. So let me start with the school board riots um, that have been sweeping every part of the country in recent months. Uh, Justice Jackson uh, famously observed that few things inflame passions as much as decisions about what children will learn in school. Now, schools are a specialized area of First Amendment law. They've long been at the center of culture wars, going back to the days of Horace Mann, when they fought about what version of the Bible would be used in schools, back when the Bible could be used in schools. And um, the issue is that the choice of curriculum and even library books at schools uh, has to be done by someone. You can't have a curriculum or a library without choosing what you're covering. Um, and in this case, it is done by the government in public schools. And the government can't be neutral because it has to make choices. And whenever the government is the speaker rather than the potential censor, it is allowed to say what it wants and to choose viewpoints and subject matter. Um, but still, questions arise when the schools deviate from their standard procedures, either to remove material or in deciding whether or not to cover something. And this is not a new legal problem. Uh, for example, in the Island Trees case that reached the Supreme Court in 1982, uh, looked a lot like what we're saying today. Their school board members went to a meeting where they obtained a nationally produced list of objectionable books and the board members then asked the library to remove those books, deliver it to the board, them to the books, uh, to the library office, and it characterized the books it had removed as quote anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy, and then explained it is our duty, our moral obligation to protect the children in our schools from this moral danger as surely as from physical and medical dangers. So you could put that language in the mouths of almost any of the recent protesters um, at school board meetings, and it's exactly the same thing. Um, and the, the, the court didn't really resolve this question, but have said if, if the motives are suspect and the procedures are irregular, there's something to look at, but it was a plurality opinion. So the law is not entirely certain there. What is certain is the certitude and the Comstockian attitude of the parents who are storming these school board meetings and in many cases threatening 
school board members, not just with being recalled from their offices or not being reelected, but with physical danger and danger to their families to an extent that the Department of Justice has had to begin to intervene. And here I think the word vigilante, which Bob applied to Comstock, applies equally well to what is going on. 165 at least uh, organized groups, both national and local, um, have been formed and they are working with the Heritage Foundation, which has provided materials, guidance, uh, to try to target the same subjects, largely in history classes right now, uh, under the guise of critical race theory, which is not taught in any K through 12 school that I have ever heard of. Um, and uh, also, the, the most common thing that parents want censored is anything about sex, uh, ranging from just plain old vanilla sexual information to uh, abortion to the notion of um, gender identity, different kinds of sexual practices, and, and also contraception, which uh, teenage girls actually have a constitutional right to obtain. Um, but what do we learn then from Bob about how to understand this phenomenon? Well, there are a lot of overlaps with the stories that he's told. Uh, like Comstack, these organizations, many of them have very deep pockets from well-funded donors. They work closely with ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is provides model bills for the Republican agenda, which has held webinars on critical race theory and has drafted legislation that has already been adopted in uh, a number of states and pending in more. So together, almost 50% of the states have adopted or are considering this. They use methods similar to Bozell's Parental Television Council uh, by encouraging complaints and the parents who are involved with this often flood the school district with um, requests for information under FOIA, hundreds and hundreds of them, sometimes by one parent, overwhelming the school bureaucracy, which is also incidentally going to interfere with, our, um, with the process of education in that district. Um, so most recently, um, a number of state attorneys general and candidates for attorney general who should know better have been promoting limitations on the curriculum with this in mind. For example, Matt Krause in the Texas House of Representatives who's running for attorney general in Texas just circulated a list of 850 books, 850 books that he uh, wants school districts to tell him if they have in their curriculum or their library and then he wants them to also identify other books beyond the 850 on, quote, topics including human sexuality, uh, STDs, HIV, or contained material that might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress. Uh, very Comstockian. So that brings us to the subject du jour, Facebook and social media. And this also fits the pattern. It's a new technology. It's causing a lot of angst. 
Uh, but unlike other new forms of technology, social media platforms were exempted from the beginning from government regulation by Section 230, um, which relieves them of editorial responsibility and legal liability. So we could think about this as a problem of financial regulation and corporate governance, and we've see, we're seeing some of that. Did they adequately expose, uh, disclose their potential liabilities to investors in their SEC filings and reports? Is it a monopoly subject to antitrust laws? Is it a predator on small business and competitors? None of these would raise First Amendment concerns um, if that is the legitimate issue that the government is going after. But it is possible that it could be seen as indirect censorship, and I have no doubt that's, that Facebook would argue this, um, that the regulatory agencies want them to be more socially responsible, want them to have different uh, curatorship policies, and that as applied to them, they could argue there is a First Amendment problem. Facebook, like the government when it speaks, does not have to be neutral. It can prefer some content to others. It cannot censor at all, or it can do what it calls curate, choose among content, which is what an old-fashioned newspaper editor does, or even a television network when it decides what shows it wants to um, uh, air. Um, and then we have to ask, does Congress really mean it when it seems to suggest it wants to deputize Facebook and other large companies to essentially be the Comstock of our day, to tell them you should go out and find these violations, uh, or even to force them to do it, um, as much of the world is starting to do, because the rest of the world doesn't have anything resembling our First Amendment. So the problem is, is there a way to stop Facebook from knowingly promoting misleading and inflammatory speech, or speech that, for example, uh, makes it easier for young people and adults to get illegal drugs. Um, and this is, these are big social problems that are separate from the whole issue of privacy and requiring Facebook to protect users' privacy and not to lie to users about what it's doing, which I don't think has First Amendment implications. Um, so can we stop Facebook? Kara Swisher in the New York Times this week said, Facebook isn't just negligent, it's making things worse. It imposed safeguards against misinformation leading up to the 2020 election, then removed them after election day, contributing to the January 6th insurrection and to the continued widespread distrust of the 2020 election results. And Swisher concludes, and I quote, Facebook is not the, hey, we're just a platform player it likes to pretend it is. It censors speakers and content when it wants to. And this week, week before, and in the near future, we're learning more and more about when it censors, when it doesn't, and why. Uh, so if Facebook perverts the marketplace of ideas to enhance profit and does so knowingly, is that illegal? No, that's what corporations do. Public corporations have a fiduciary duty to enhance profit. So um, we have to ask, why substitute Facebook as a censor or any other unaccountable entity 
to, to censor in what Congress or the public or parts of the public consider the right way to curate more than we or the founders trusted the government. We're not going to necessarily agree on what's the right way. Um, so we recognize the moves. We've seen them before in Bob's book. They make nice, they lobby, they make promises, they self-regulate until things cool down. Right now they're saying, why don't you come and give us regulations we can follow, then we won't have such public relations images uh, problems, but also don't regulate us in a way we don't like. Uh, both parties are clamoring for regulations, holding hearings that might never result in any activity. Um, and, and this just all looks very familiar. The potential ramifications for censorship, authoritarianism, and democracy should not be underestimated. And Bob opened with a quote from Learned Hand, and I would like to close with a paraphrase of from Learned Hand, because I didn't bring the quote, um, but the proposition that uh, free debate leads to better understanding and toward truth um, is central to us. Many doubt the wisdom of this path, he said, and this is a direct quote, but upon it, we have staked our all. Thank you. Uh, our final commentator today will be Jason Kuznicki, a senior fellow and editor of Cato Books, at, and he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And he also edits Cato Unbound, the Cato Institute's online journal of debate. His first book, Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For?, was published in 2018. It surveys Western political theory from a libertarian perspective. He was assistant editor of the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism. He also contributed a chapter to libertarian.org's book, Visions of Liberty. He earned a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins in 2005, where his work was offered both a Fulbright Fellowship and the Chateaubriand Prize. Next year, now look for this, next year he will be editing Free Society, a quarterly print journal of commentary that will launch in March 2022. Thanks for commenting today, Jason. <laughs> As you just heard, I'm also a historian, so you're going to get uh, a lot of the methods and uh, mindset of, of uh, historians here. And one of the things that any good historian is going to do when looking at the past is to pay attention to both change and continuity, because no story of change is really complete without paying attention to the continuities that form its backdrop, and no story of continuity is really complete without paying attention to change, because society is, in fact, always changing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some really long-term historical continuities that are on display in this book. My own uh, background, my own subfield of history is the Enlightenment. So it's a little bit before, in some ways, uh, the subject matter in the book. But there are a lot of continuities. So Voltaire, in the 18th century, writing about the censorship that he faced, uh, you can look at his letters today, and it's very clear he knew that a trip to the Bastille was 
you know, obviously no fun, uh, but he knew two things about it. First, you'd get a lot of work done there. And second, it was good for sales. Uh, he knew that even better than the author being sent to the Bastille was when the archbishop holds a book-burning ceremony on the steps of the cathedral. This was the jackpot. You wanted that to happen because then people knew, aha, this must be an interesting book. As the uh, modern, present-day historian Robert Darnton has noted, uh, Booksellers at the time had a whole category of books that they referred to as philosophical books. And these were, some of them, philosophy books, like those of Voltaire or Diderot or Hume or whatever. But some of them, some of them were pornography. And this was like a, a sort of umbrella category for both of them. And uh, one of the things that I find, find very uh, entertaining about, about your book, if I may say so, I, I read the book first in PDF, and so I didn't see the cover until like an hour ago. And, and I love that the cover would have infuriated Anthony Comstock. I love that. I think that's, that's wonderful. Uh, censorship, though, is always an imperfect mechanism. This is a continuity. This is something that maintains all the way through from the 18th century and well before up to the present day. Uh, prisoners who aren't allowed any contact with one another in prison nonetheless tap out messages to each other. We want to communicate and we will do just about anything to do that, even when people stand in our way. So breaks in the censorship, failures of the censorship are a continuity. And another one, another one that Voltaire appreciated very well is ridicule. Ridicule is probably the best weapon that we have against censorship. Ridicule is powerful. And yes, it is subject to censorship, but it works. It works. Uh, when we get to the material that is in the book, we can see this. And you saw this in, in uh, Bob's uh, presentation, but I want to talk a little bit about about uh, exactly how this unfolds. If you, were, if you were a woman or a, uh, a man of the lower classes, a less educated, a poorer man in the 1880s, Anthony Comstock wanted to keep you ignorant. He wanted to make sure that you did not know how your own body worked. He wanted to make sure that you did not know how to protect yourself against disease or pregnancy. He wanted to make sure that whatever you knew about sex came from dirty jokes and farm animals. And we ought to consider that appalling, and we ought to consider it ridiculous. We should consider that a contemptible way to go through life and a contemptible vision of society. We ought to laugh at that. It's stupid. Uh, if you were a young man in the 1980s, and if you were a black man in the United States in the 1980s, your music is being scapegoated for the war on drugs. That's what's happening. Gangster rap was not a 
cause of the war on drugs. It was not a cause of what was destroying your community. It was a scapegoat. What was really destroying your community was the war on drugs. But admitting that was difficult. Admitting that was hard. And saying, hey, look, the whole war on drugs was terribly misconceived, and it's having these awful effects on our communities, and it ought to stop, that was something politicians couldn't do. Instead, they turned to demonizing music. And that's ridiculous. That ought to be laughed at. And it was laughed at. Uh, it was, and it has been, and, and good. I'm glad that I've seen that in my lifetime. If you were like me, a uh, not yet out of the closet young gay man growing up in the conservative Midwest, you could see that the authorities in places like Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up, were ridiculous and crazy. And they got laughed at, and they deserved it. Ridicule is a tremendously important weapon, and there are many examples of that in this book. Uh, so there are continuities in this story, and I like the way that they are brought out. There are also, there are also though, changes. And we've already heard some about change. Uh, we have heard about new technologies driving change in particular. It used to be in Anthony Comstock's day that the way censorship worked was this. You have an author who writes a book and wants to have it published. You have a publisher who wants to publish the book. And you have a reader who wants to read the book. And they all agree on the process and how it should happen. And then the censor comes in and says, no, wait a minute, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let you do that. Nowadays, though, things work very differently. Now, on a social media platform, we are all authors. We are all something close to publishers, maybe. And we are all readers. And every single one of us is a potential censor. We are all of those things simultaneously. And that's a change. That is something that hasn't happened before. The trouble with trying to impose censorship on social media nowadays is that everyone wants some form of moderation, but none of us agree on everything. We are always going to disagree. And so what ends up being created is something like uh, Hayek's argument in The Road to Serfdom. Hayek said, look, central economic planning isn't going to work in a democracy because we can't all agree on the plan. And what that produces is an impulse toward dictatorship. Because we cannot agree democratically on how to allocate resources in the economy, we come to hate democracy. And we shouldn't really do that, but we do because we're asking too much of it. And I think a very similar thing is happening with social media. We are expecting of Facebook things that Facebook can't deliver, including a censorship mechanism that simultaneously validates our own interests and also is acceptable to everyone else. And when we add to that the problem of doing it effectively according to anyone's standard, we're just asking way too much of them. It's impossible for them to deliver that. They are always going to be bad at this, just like democracies are always bad at economic planning. 
What's the answer then? Well, I've, I've already hinted at it somewhat, and I think part of the answer lies in self-moderation, which is to say, I am in charge of my content on the internet, and when you come to my site, I get to say whether you speak or not. Uh, when we look at things through that lens, it, it seems like what Facebook is doing and what they, what they have offered to the user base is not adequate. I think Facebook doesn't give me enough control over my own feed. And I'll give a few examples of that. It used to be the case that you could unfollow anyone and everyone simultaneously. And nowadays, you can't. That's a feature that formerly existed in Facebook, unfollow everyone. And then for a while, it lived on, I, I think, as a browser extension. You can't do this now, except by clicking on everyone and saying unfollow specifically and individually. That's one thing. Another thing is, I can't specify favorites beyond 30 of them. I can choose 30 really smart people that I always see first, and I have. But there are way more than 30 people that I'd like to see first before I get to all the other recommendations. I would like more control over what I see and what I don't see. And I don't have that. A, a third thing that I would suggest that Facebook could do better to alleviate some of these conflicts is that it could back way off on recommending people things to follow and things to like and things to join. Uh, I have found with the way that I use Facebook as an engaged quasi-public person, what Facebook decides for me, what, I, what it thinks I must really love is often some crazy far-right content that I want nothing to do with. When Facebook started recommending, why don't you follow Lauren Boebert? And moved from there to things still more extreme, I began to doubt the whole idea that it could ever possibly moderate content competently. I don't think it can. I think individuals can. I think we all have individual standards. And if we don't start decentralizing our social media experience more, we're just going to fight each other harder and harder and harder. And I don't want to see that. So what would I recommend? I would, I would recommend to Facebook adopt more tools that let people have an individualized experience. And I would recommend to Facebook users consider foot voting, which is to say, consider leaving the platform. If you're unhappy there, go somewhere else. If you are a content provider, there are lots of other platforms that will be happy to have you. If you are a reader, there are lots of other places where you can read about news and current events and culture and, and whatever you like. There are also other ways to keep in touch with your family and friends. It won't be a perfect solution, but no solution is a perfect solution. And, and one more thing about foot voting. If you're a content provider and your content is just too much for Facebook and you're looking around for other platforms and you're too spicy for all of them, I'm starting to think at that point, maybe it's not the platforms, maybe that's on you. Just maybe, just maybe. Uh, I, I think that uh, one of the ways in which I might dissent from uh, the other panelists here 
is that I am a, li a little bit less enthusiastic about the idea that truth will eventually come to the top. I am a little less enthusiastic about the idea that in a fair fight, truth always wins. Uh, John Milton has this famous quote, uh, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. I have, I've seen it happen. I've seen people make disastrously wrong choices about things like, should I get vaccinated? Because they did their research online. So I have seen truth lose. But when it does, I can at least console myself that the encounter in which truth lost was free and open. Those are not bad things. Those are things worth keeping. The position that I am much closer to is agonism. Agonism in political theory is the idea that conflicts will be ongoing. Truth will not be arrived at. We are going to be a fragmented society because we are a free society. That's just how life works in a free society. We are going to be fragmented, and wanting for too much unity is harmful. Wanting too much unity is dangerous. We don't have to be progressing to any particular answer to want freedom anyway. We don't have to be on the grand high road that leads to truth to deserve and to seek and to obtain the right to be left alone. That's something that I think needs to be remembered here. That when we go to look at and evaluate a place like Facebook, it's important to remember that Facebook is very centralized, very centrally controlled, and it's not gonna be able to satisfy all of us. And decentralization might be a big part of the answer. Decentralization might be how we learn to all live with one another despite our differences. We've heard it uh, mentioned already, uh, and it certainly comes up in the book, that 90% that of everything is crap. And, uh, and I, I think that's probably true, but I would, I would venture a corollary to it. The corollary is that we don't know the 10% in advance. We don't yet know whether this or that new media product is gonna be good or bad, whether it'll make a good argument or a bad one, or even whether it will be aesthetically pleasing or not, until we have personally seen it. So when Newton Minow asks, which would you rather take in, a symphony or a western? I would say it depends on the symphony and it depends on the Western. I've seen some excellent Westerns and I've heard some awful symphonies. So it really depends. And I don't know in advance. And I don't think that anyone who would set, them up, set themselves up as a censor is likely to be able to make that determination either. If we are strictly confining ourselves to aesthetics, that's really a domain for individual choice, not a domain for a uh, centralized authority to determine. 
they're bad at that. They are reliably bad at that. That's a historical continuity. That happens all the time. And why does it happen? It happens because no matter what instance prompts a censorship regime to be set up, no matter what specific publication it was that causes the outrage that puts Anthony Comstock in power, it could be a perfectly objectionable, indecent, pornographic, scandalous piece of literature that has no merit whatsoever. Fine, we all agree on that. You've still put a censor in power, and tomorrow he'll go to work on something else. And censors are not selected at random. And they're not selected by having especially marked aesthetic sensibilities or intellectual refinement. They are self-selected because censors find the offices where their internal censoriousness can shine forth. When you set up an office of censor, you create a want ad for the censorious people in society, and they flock to it. So even if it's prompted by the most virtuous impulse in the world, you can't say what will happen tomorrow, but it's probably not going to be too good. So I highly recommend the book. I, I struggle to find anything where I could really disagree. Agonism might be maybe the, the biggest uh, objection that I have, but uh, well done. If I were, if I were teaching the history of censorship and, and the freedom of expression, this would be a book I would want to teach from. Jason's comments about self-moderation are well taken. However, uh, I must confess that perhaps for fear of Comstockian uh, elements or allowing my Comstockian self to, I have uh, not moderated our time well enough so we're out of time. So what I can offer you in compensation is lunch and the ability, I hope, to speak with our author. You can buy the book outside or the commenters upstairs on the second floor at the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is, as you, many of you may know, up the spiral staircase. The restrooms are located on the second floor on your way to lunch. Uh, and so I'd like to finish, sadly, uh, but necessarily, by congratulating Bob again on his hard work on this book, his long-standing fight for freedom of speech and other liberal values. And the same can be said of our commenters. Thanks very much.